0: First of all, I'll begin by reminding people that we live in a fallen world in which there's only one Savior, only one Messiah, and it's not me, and it's not you, and it's not the President, and it's not the Prime Minister. So we, we don't expect that any human being or any human political party has got all the answers or is all good. There's always a mixture of that which is good and that which is evil, that power corrupts and so on. So be realistic, don't be naive. Welcome to the Transforming Discipleship
1: Podcast brought to you by smallgroups.com a podcast designed for church leaders desiring to make disciples for Jesus Christ in the world. I'm your host, Oliver Hersey, and today we have the opportunity to talk with the Reverend Dr. Christopher Wright, a missiologist who lives in London and serves as the International Ministries Director of Langham Partnership International, a ministry founded by John Stott. Dr. Wright also ministers to parishioners at All Souls Church in London and has earned a Ph.D. from Cambridge University in Theology, specifically, and I love this, in Old Testament economic ethics. It is a privilege and a joy to get to speak with Dr. Wright. I hope you enjoy this conversation that I have with him, which today specifically focuses on what does faithful discipleship look like in idolatrous times. Dr. Wright, I want to focus our conversation on your most recent book today, Here Are Your Gods, Faithful Discipleship in Idolatrous Times. Where does the title, Here Are Your Gods, come from? And why did you choose this title for your work? I know that you write a little bit about this and and one of the first places we see it in the Bible is in regard to the story of the Exodus when Aaron fashions the golden calf at the bottom of Mount Sinai as Moses has disappeared and no one knows where he is and where he's gone. And he fashions this golden calf because the mass... Uh, the masses around him have pressured him to do so, and he says to them after he does it, here are your gods, and there are other places as well where we see this phrase. So I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about it, and then also, you know, why did you choose this title for your work?
0: So the point uh, of the quotation is that the people of Israel weren't, in a sense, trying to deny Yahweh the God of Israel or reject him totally because they say, "Who brought you up out of Egypt, you know, that, that was what Yahweh had done but they are creating idols and calling them gods. And they are somehow mixing this idea of gods that were powerless and yet connecting them somehow with Yahweh, the God of Israel. It is, in effect, what we call syncretism. Mm. Uh, And in the case of uh, Jeroboam, the one who rebelled against Rehoboam, it was for political reasons. He develops a religious cult uh, with places of worship and priests and sacrifices, which were all, in a sense, Designed to support his kingdom. It was co-opting the worship of Yahweh, the God of Israel, to somehow bless his political establishment. It was kind of like kind of God bless Jeroboam, you know, God bless the, you know, the yeah. northern kingdom. And then creating gods of his own choosing to do that. So it's a very subtle form of idolatry uh, where you claim to be worshiping the living God but actually uh, creating false ones. So that, that's where the title comes from, Here Are Your Gods. As you're
1: saying this, and you you reference, and you unpack this a little bit in the book, but it gets me thinking about yeah. what you note. Know, it's this twisting that happens with, it's a small twist. It's a small twist of what is truth and what is reality, and it's a bending of it that ends up uh, really warping our understanding of who God is, and we go hook, line, and sinker right after it. it and, and I guess the question is, why? why? Why can't we just see that it's not the case? It's not, it's not God. Like, how, what, is, what is so difficult, and, and why do all of us fall prey to
0: this in some way, shape, or fashion? Well, one problem, of course, is that we want to rule our own lives. Um, uh, you know, idolatry is the very essence of self-exaltation over and above God. It goes right back to the Garden of Eden, you know, when human beings reject authority of God and God's right to tell us what we may or may not do, and we decide we will decide that for ourselves, then of course we've already begun to push God off his throne and to exalt other things. And once you start doing that, then it becomes easier and easier to justify. And when you've got either political or security reasons, probably in the case of Exodus, because the Israelites thought, well, Moses is gone. We don't know. We're stuck here in the wilderness. What are we going to do? We've got to leave, you know. So there's a fear element. We, we need gods, you know, to, to lead us on out of this place. And so all sorts of motivations, fear, pride, arrogance insecurity can lead us to say we, we better fix up a few gods for ourselves here because you know somehow this Yahweh God is great on Sabbath days you know you get a day off a week he's great for three festivals a year when you get a week's holiday every year he's a pretty good God in battle you know he, he'll, he'll win your battles but somehow for everyday life for the real world you know, you either need the gods of Egypt, perhaps, the gods of empire, or you need the gods of Canaan, you know, Baal, who's the god of money and sex and wealth and prosperity and all that. So you just say, well, we'll keep Yahweh, but we'll we'll have a few other gods as well alongside, just to make sure, you know, just hedge our bets.
1: Well, in Exodus 32, you have Aaron being pressured by the people yeah. in such a way. You know, and it makes me wonder, too, how often we end up twisting and, and bending things on account of a mass appeal. Yeah,
0: yeah. There's, there's no doubt that that is, that is true, because one of the most common expressions, for example, in the book of Deuteronomy and elsewhere is that the people of Israel were going after the gods of the people around them. You know, Do not go after the gods of the people around you. There's this sense of a cultural pressure or a cultural plausibility. Look, everybody else does this. So you know, if you want to get on in business, you have got to do the business the way everybody else does business. You know, the, the question of trusting in God doesn't come into it. So the, the the power of social pressure is just as great in the spiritual realm of idolatry as we know that it is also in the cultural and social realm for young people, for children, for all of us. We we tend to follow the crowd. What does the Bible
1: teach us about idols? Uh, what are they? Mm. Uh, and I know you unpack this in a masterful way in your book. And I hope those listening will go and get this book, but maybe you could just give us a quick minute or two summary of what does the Bible say about idols and and maybe even add to that. How do we worship them today?
0: Well, I mean, the word idol is usually a rough translation of the Hebrew word. It simply means an image or sometimes a likeness or a statue. Uh, So it it does have a a physical sense of um, something that is created by human ingenuity Uh, and skill, uh, and often is very beautiful or powerful or dazzling. But the point is that those idols, which were there in the ancient culture and are also in our culture today, we have the great symbols of national power. You know, we have eagles, we have flags, we have tall buildings, we have sports stadia. We have all sorts of ways in which we symbolize and express elements of what is powerful or awesome in the proper meaning of that word awesome. What that then speaks of often though, is a kind of a power which is seen to be or thought to be invisible, which in the ancient world, the, you know, the gods were up there in heaven or above the mountain somewhere. And, and there are statues were the source or the entrance to that power, the statue, was there in the temple. The ironic point is that sometimes the Israelites are accused by modern theologians that, well, they thought that the pagans were just worshipping these statues or these literally physical idols and didn't realize that the people were really worshipping what they thought were the gods in the heavens. I think that's a a very patronizing attitude, because, for example, Isaiah knows perfectly well that Bel and Nebo, who were the two of of the gods of Babylon, he portrays them as stooping down from heaven. They're bowing down to the earth. Why? Because their statues were being carried out on ox carts. Uh, And so he's, he's mocking this idea of having gods that somehow can't even save their own statues, let alone save the people who worship them. They were fully aware of this, but the point is that they then describe these gods, like the idols that represented them, as "quotes the work of man's hands." They said the the gods themselves are just as much human constructs, that the product of human imagination, hmm. as are the idols and statues, which are the product of human hands in the gold and the wood and so that's on. good. And that, I think, comes out from Isaiah and Hosea, that they recognize that the gods are not something real in in the way that Yahweh is the real god. They are, in a sense, ideological or spiritual or religious things that are created by human imagination to which we then give power, which we then, as it were, bow down and, and submit to in some way. And that, of course, is where the spiritual power of these things comes in, because we begin to let them have power over us. Yeah. Uh, we submit to them, which, of course, is the very essence of what worship ought to be. Yeah, that's really, really scary. And
1: and I think we just found the title of your next sequel to this book, God's on the Ox Cart. <laughs> and that's how we get rid of them, God's on the Ox Cart. Well, it, it,
0: it is amazingly, I mean, it's it's comic. It's quite. I'm sure it's quite deliberately comic. Oh, it is indeed. Where I, Isaiah there in, uh, in your the you you know, he says that these gods, they're bowing down because they, they can't even save their own statues. They're being, yeah. they're actually a burden. They're, instead of saving the people, they're a burden to the people. So you write this on page 68 in your book. I want to
1: read a quote from your, your book, and it kind of gets after what we're talking about right now. I want to read two quotes, actually. They're short. And then I want to hear your thoughts on it a little bit more. Bringing the Bible to bear on contemporary politics is usually very uncomfortable. For it exposes so much that we would prefer should stay hidden, and even more that we may not have seen at all, such as the idols that dominate so much of our public and political life. Yet, the whole idea of gods and idols, though it is such a prominent theme in the Bible, especially in the arena of public and national life, seems damagingly neglected in contemporary Christian political discourse and analysis. And then you continue right on the next page. You said, as Christians, quote, we desperately need to name these gods and expose them. And this is where you get your title. Here
0: are your gods.
1: Why is it so imperative we name and
0: expose the gods? For exactly the same reason, Oliver, that the prophets did in the Old Testament, because the people of Israel, a lot of the time, were so confused that they didn't know that they were worshipping these other gods. It mm. is the prophets who come along and expose them. Uh, and Jeremiah, for example, points out that the people are confused. They're asking stupid questions. They're, they're, they're making all kinds of false claims, and he, he points this out. Part of the responsibility of the church is to have that prophetic ability To identify the the spiritual powers, what Paul calls principalities and powers, the spiritual realities that can lurk within ordinary human political life, now or social life or economic life or family life or even church life. So I'm not talking about saying that therefore we have to regard all politicians as somehow demonic, you know. I mean, when you look, say, at, at Daniel, he was a civil servant, he was a public administrator. He worked under Nebuchadnezzar to start with. And Nebuchadnezzar was a human ruler and king. He he seems to have had a pretty efficient government. And Daniel and his friends were able to serve that government and do pretty well. And he, he kept on doing that to the extent that he was able to be recognized for his excellence and his integrity and his qualities as a government servant. And yet, at the same time, in the visions of his book, Daniel is clearly very aware or made to become aware of the. Beast like spiritual realities that underlie Mm. that political power that it was devouring, uh, that it was, um, you know, crushing people, that it was destroying the poor, that it was contrary to God's patterns of justice and compassion. And, And so he has both a spiritual insight to see what's happening underneath and behind political power. But it doesn't, in a sense, turn him into a kind of apocalyptic weirdo who just goes off and, you know, develops some sort of conspiracy theories. No, he, he says, the next day, I went back about the king's business. He carries on in the political sphere, but he carries on that as a believer, well, always was, a believer in the living God, with his windows open to Jerusalem, drawing his own personal values from the kingdom of God, from the city that Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed, Jerusalem, yeah. city of God, not from the city that Nebuchadnezzar had built, which was Babylon, which was where, where he was living. So it seems to me that part of the job as Christians is that we learn to live in Babylon, where we have to live because we're in the world, yeah. and yet we live by the standards and values of the kingdom of God, uh, of the living God who is the God of truth and integrity and justice and compassion, uh, and we learn to be able to distinguish between the two and then negotiate that very difficult, challenging interface uh, that we have with this overlap between living in the kingdom of this world while living by the standards of the kingdom
1: of God. It's an ongoing tension that all followers of Jesus experience. And I think you're drawing out here in your work such an important component. I think you're right. I think it is uncomfortable for a lot of contemporary Christians. I think about a lot of churches I've been a part of, the the churches I've been a pastor in. It is uncomfortable to get into conversations about contemporary politics. But we must, and especially when you think about what the biblical story is, from beginning to end, it's, its backdrop is ancient Near Eastern politics Mm -hmm. and geopolitical issues that are arising, whether it's Egypt or Assyria or the Arameans or Babylon or Persia or the Roman, Greco-Roman context. And Mm -hmm. constantly we are watching God's people live in that tension. So I I think your challenge to us is pertinent um, Mm -hmm. by all means. And I guess the question is, you know, as the pastor right now who I'm thinking of that is trying to speak into this tension Walk into it. How should he or she do it, and what would you encourage that person to do?
0: Well, I could illustrate this perhaps with a conversation that I had not so long ago with a a radio, a Christian radio station, where the host was going on considerable length about, you know, the political realities of the present day, and I'm aware, you know, of what has been happening and still is happening in the United States around the election. But then said, you know, but of course Jesus comes first. He is our first priority. And then he asked me how how I would go about helping people to see that Jesus is our first priority. He's the one we really worship, not our political eyes. And I said, well, what did Jesus teach? Jesus taught, seek first the kingdom of God. We, We can't claim to be followers of Jesus and be putting Jesus first unless we know something about what it means to be people of the kingdom of God, people who are submitting to the reign of God within our political opinions and our political choices and our political loyalties. So if the kingdom of God is the kingdom of the God who demands integrity, who demands truth, who demands justice, who is the God of compassion, who is the God who cares for the widow and the orphan, the fatherless and the foreigner, and loves the foreigner living among you and feeds and clothes them, as Deuteronomy 10 says, if this is the God, whom we claim is our king, then that must affect how we evaluate the political choices that we have to make in a democracy when we exercise our political will. It it can't simply be along the lines of, you know, who we favor, who we like, or who we are most loyal to. One of the ways in which I think we recognize when idolatrous tendencies are beginning to take over is when people become either unwilling or unable to be in any sense critical of a particular position or a person or an ideology or a program, and they will not hear anything said about it which is negative or critical, no matter how reasonable it might sound. No, this has got to be defended, as it were, defended to the death, even defended if necessary with you know lies and everything else. Then I think we're getting into the realm of idolatrous loyalties – as distinct from reasoned positions, which are thought through in the light of the scriptures and in light of our Christian loyalty, uh, and then argued for in, in a reasonable basis. It's when it goes beyond that that I think we're getting into the idolatrous realms.
1: It's so helpful, and I, and I wonder if you, wouldn't, if you wouldn't mind maybe even walk us through some of the internal questions that you might ask yourself in the shoes of a, of a pastor or ministry leader or even a voter in any sort of democracy. What kind of questions would, should we be asking ourselves?
0: First of all, I begin by reminding people that we live in a fallen world in which there's only one savior, only one messiah, and it's not me, and it's not you, and it's not the president, and it's not the prime minister. So, we, we don't expect that any human being or any human political party has got all the answers or is all good. There's always a mixture of that which is good and that which is evil, that power corrupts, and so on. So, be realistic, don't be naive. That would be the first thing I would say. And then secondly, I would say we need to encourage our congregation to think through the balance of goods and the balances of bads in any political party's platform, because it's never going to be that one will be totally one or the other. And we may sometimes, certainly in Britain, in my own case, we may well have to vote for parties or for manifestos or for individuals with whom we don't agree on everything. In fact, there may be some areas where we radically disagree with, with some of the things they say, but where we feel that on balance, that what they are representing is a little bit closer to some of the values of God's kingdom on behalf of the issues of justice uh, in relation to poverty and uh, and so on, or equality, than other positions are. And then to, in some cases, hold our nose and vote. Um, yeah. It will never be the case, that we will simply... <laughs> Agree with everything. But there are some positions that I would say, you know, there are some political agendas and some political positions and arguments which are very far from, in fact, pretty contradictory to the values and standards that the Bible gives us for political life. And let's remember, as you were saying earlier, that in the Old Testament and in the New, there are things what which are said about what God expects of rulers, what God's demands on those who are in positions of authority, whether political or judicial or military or economic power, what are the standards that God requires of them? And if somebody in power or authority is simply trampling on those values completely in the totally opposite direction with their policies, then I think we are right to ask, in what sense do they deserve any kind of allegiance from somebody who claims to be a citizen of the kingdom of God? This
1: episode of the Transforming Discipleship Podcast has been brought to you by smallgroups.com. It's a ministry of Christianity Today. I'm your host, Oliver Hersey, and I am in the Chicago area doing all sorts of various ministries. We want to thank all of you ministry leaders who have tuned into this episode. If you are finding this podcast helpful for your ministry, would you do three things for us? One, would you subscribe to our YouTube channel? Two, would you give us a five-star rating on iTunes? and three. Would you subscribe to smallgroups.com today? This podcast is also available on Amazon Podcasts, on your Amazon Alexa device, and on other podcast platforms. If you want full access to smallgroups.com, you can subscribe at a very low cost today. There's various plans to meet your specific budget. This will give you access to hundreds of Bible studies and tools to train your small group leaders and so much more. And finally, I just want to encourage you again to go get Chris's latest book, Here Are Your God's Faithful Discipleship in Idolatrous Times. And remember, all proceeds do go to Langham Partnership. I've thoroughly enjoyed learning from Chris and have found this particular book to be deeply challenging and provoking for my own walk with God. Until next time, God bless.